You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I hope wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, you are doing very well. What you're about to listen to is an edited copy of the discussion with Tony Demolition Man Dolan, the frontman and bass player in Venom Inc., that went to air on 4ZZZ Z Digital sometime in mid to late 2017. The reason for the discussion was to promote the band's then new album called Arvo. It's an excellent album. I do encourage you to check it out online. Anyway, strap yourself in. You're about to listen to almost two hours of conversation between myself and Tony from the band Venom Inc. Let's go. Tony, Demolition Man Dolan, I am genuinely grateful to be able to have a chat to you, mate, as I've long admired your work and also your work ethic. I actually got into Venom through the excellent Primeval, and I'm thrilled that oh. you've returned with Mantis and Abaddon to produce the excellent Arve. So on that note, how would you describe Arve? Uh, well, thank you very much for those very kind words, and I feel quite humbled by it. Uh, I mean, I think Arve is is not a continuation from where we stopped in 92 with the Wasteland, and, and, and it, it's kind of not just another continuation from the three of us. I think, you know, that the original Venom, the, the those original three people had a particular something, something special, and and it kicked off uh, the whole thing with Venom. And I think that, um, you know, they lost their way somewhat, and, and, uh, and I came in to kind of try and recapture that initial spirit, the original spirit, <clears throat> uh, with Primeval in, in 88 and 89, and, and, and kind of that's where... We came in, but I think that um, you know now with looking at RV, I think we've travelled such a long way. Uh, you nearly forty years. You myself and Mantis were ten years in with Empire of Evil. We'd just done nothing but tour and record and tour and record. And I guess when we came to to do RV, um, you know, it was a surprise to us. We didn't plan an album or anything else. And you know, Abaddon hadn't been with us, and and we kind of took a risk uh, on an invitation just to play a few songs to some fans with no rehearsals at a festival, and um, it all went crazy from there. You know, from the minute Tony hit the first hi hats, we realised there was something special about the three of us being together and playing, and sure. it felt mm. like. You know, with a 20-year gap between him and Manta seeing each other, and a 25-year gap between me. And, and Abaddon being together, and you know, you would think that it would be there would be an odd feeling, and we'd have to get back onto the horse and feel. Or we, but it was like it was the next day. It felt so natural. But the difference being that, and this is why I say it's not just a continuation. It's like almost like a, a, a rebirth, if you like, from the original feeling. Is that we feel inspired, given our age, we feel. You know, young and and vital and 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 passionate and uh, and this time it's very very different. We're on the fans. We've we've done nothing but tour and and we have a much better relationship. And we can we can see the effect that all of the years of the music have had, and it's inspiring us. So the fans have driven us to play all the, over the world. The fans have driven us towards making an album, and we've just gone along with it. We haven't planned anything, and we're still not planning. We're just letting it happen, and, and that's a wonderful, wonderful way to feel. I'm so glad to hear that, that you're just taking it as it comes, because it's so, it is refreshing, because so many bands, and I know that they've got to have business plans because of label expectations and managerial expectations and all the rest of it, because a lot of bands are a ticket to, they're a meal ticket, aren't they? But Exactly. But for you guys, you're doing this out of the love of the music. 
And that's it. You know, we, we, we you, those points are exactly right. And, you know, and we, we, we're not doing it to jump on a bandwagon. We're not doing it to scream money out of anything. We're not doing it for any other reason. When we did the first tours, we didn't need money. We didn't do it for money. So we did it because people wanted to hear it. And we, we considered that and thought, well, why, why fucking not? We can. So we thought, fuck it. We didn't have any label. We didn't have any management. We didn't have any pressure. I was managing the whole thing. And it was like, we don't need other people being involved. And it was, it was kind of why I was pulling away from making an album. Cause I thought, fuck, we got to make an album. That means we got, you're trying to sell to labels. You've got to have some management. There's all the promotion. Then there's the, the whole critics stuff. Where there's the whole yeah. fans like it, don't like it. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. And I thought, no, what we were doing was so pure. It was just fans and music, fans and music. What do you want to hear? Play that. Okay. Bang. Job done. Where do you want to go? Oh, nobody's ever been to our town in wherever is it, upstate Poughkeepsie. It was like, okay, right, <laughs> let's go play, play. You know, and it, we had that freedom and I didn't want to restrict us uh, by just making an album and assigning to a, a label. And then we had all those regular restrictions and it's all about cash flow. It's like, fuck that. So, but I think what's fortunate is, you know, we have John Suzula, Chuck Billy, uh, uh, who's managing us as band and personal manager. And we have Nuclear Blast, which I have an association with for many years and, and Yap there. And they're, they all know who we are. They all understand how we are and how I feel. And they're accommodating that. They're allowing us to, to still be the same people, to still be the same band. They're just supporting it. And that's what's great, you know. And I think that if, if young bands are looking at us and thinking, well, it, you know, because every rock star tells you how shit it is and don't get into it and blah. Mm. Meanwhile, yeah. they're touring the fucking world, making albums and doing all this stuff. It's like, right, so you're... You're happy you're doing it, but you're telling everybody else not to do it. What, you know, because they're going to crowd the bus or something? It's like, <laughs> you know, I would say that do it. Fucking do it. Go for it. You know, it doesn't matter how bad it gets or how good it gets. Go for it. There's black metal bands in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Yes. For fuck's sake. Yeah. It's black metal bands. They're doing it because they believe in it. And if you believe in it, you find like-minded individuals who believe in it and the fans want to believe in it, then, you know, you'll, you'll do it. And, and uh, so that's, that's where we're fortunate to have that support. It's funny that you mentioned Saudi Arabia because much to my surprise, I've actually got people who tune in and subscribe to my podcast from Saudi Arabia in the Middle East. And oh, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It is. It's great. But I think that talks, that, that talks about the global brotherhood of metal. You know, it doesn't Absolutely. matter, metal, and especially Venom, you know, Venom is one of those bands, apart from the fact that it started the whole genre and you're a significant part of their legacy, it's, metal is something that crosses cultural, religious, socioeconomic boundaries, isn't it? Well, you know, what's funny about that, Andrew, is that you, you just uh, partitioned my speech that I give on stage when I talk about <laughs> when we play Sons of Satan, which has become like our anthem. Uh, and and it's exactly for those reasons. You know, what I say is that the beauty of what we are as a community, you may live in a village somewhere, you may be at a school somewhere, you may be in a town somewhere where people think you're a fucking weirdo because you might have tattoos or you dress in black or you wear a bit of too much makeup or, you know, you've got piercings or, or, or whatever and, and the kind of music you listen to. 
and you feel that you're alone and you, you hug the internet and you hug yes, your albums and you th think that there's just you. And then you go to Vakken where there's 50,000 people <laughs> who are also just you and you realize, oh, it's not just me. And the beauty of the internet, embracing the internet, is that it doesn't matter where you live. If you can get a Wi-Fi signal, you can find the rest of your community. And it's from Kuala Lumpur to Japan to Tokyo yeah. to, to Peru to Canada to Iceland to fucking Alaska. I mean, there's no part of the planet where people aren't, where nobody, where you won't find a metalhead. And that's what's beautiful about it. And like I say, you know, when I say that on stage, the beauty of music is I can't speak Mandarin. I can't speak well Spanish or my French is a bit iffy. My Italian's a bit, my German's okay, but I don't speak any Scandinavian languages. And yet when we play Countess Bathory, wherever we are in the world, everybody sings, everybody sings it. So that shows you that, like you just said, religion, politics, socioeconomic state, it, none of it matters. None of it matters when, when it comes down to music. It's the soundtrack to our life and, and it touches you or it doesn't touch you, but it, it means something regardless of what, you know, your outside uh, state is telling you, you know. And like I say, everybody, when I say Sons of Satan, you know, um, when when you go to work and or you go to a bus stop or you go to a mall and somebody flips you off and says, who the fuck do you think you are? You tell them who you are. You're the Sons of fucking Satan. And that brings <laughs> us all together. <clears throat> yes. Mate, you're an affable bloke, and I'd like for those listening to get to know you better because what I'm going to do is I'm going to, going to compile the discussion that I've had with Abaddon and yourself onto the one podcast episode. So, gosh, it's, hopefully it goes for three hours, mate, or get that much time with you both. But, look, as I say, I want the listeners to get to know you better because you are an underappreciated, underrated bass player and vocalist. Um, I've always found that you sing in this almost semi-demonic Brian Johnson manner as a reference for anybody who's yet to really sort of hear your contribution to the Venom legacy. But I guess I'll start by asking, mate, what got you started playing heavy metal? Well, you know, it's quite funny because Jono is uh, from the same place I'm from and he, his band was called Geordie and I'm a Geordie and he was with the input. He recorded uh -huh. all of his neat records. So there's a synergy there. Uh, and, and I take your point gratefully. Thank you. Uh, I, I mean, um, you know, I, I, you know, moved to Canada in the early 70s with my family. And, uh, and you know, it was all um, Kiss, Aerosmith, you know, um, Foreigner, you know, all that, Ted Nugent. Uh, I lived near Detroit. And I came back, returned back to England in the 70s, about 78, and walked straight into punk rock. Um, and the first thing I experienced on a sonic level was going to a school disco uh, before I rejoined the school and all these guys were jumping around with plastic bags and pins in their nose and I was thinking what the fuck is going on here and I thought this is insane I'd never heard anything like it or seen anything like it but very soon I realized that it was moving me it, it was speaking to me somehow the energy the, the freedom of expression and very quickly I became a punk and you know being a young person you tend to go punk's great everything else is shit everything else is shit only punk rules and then uh, metal came along I happened to be at a motorhead gig which I didn't I'd never heard the band I went to see the punk band that was supporting them and I heard this noise which was Lemmy and thinking what the fuck someone's driving a truck through here yes. and then bang, the lights go on and there's these three guys bullet belts hair blowing I was like what the fuck and they rolled over me like a Mack truck and when I walked out I was in state of shock now, one of my favorite punk bands was the Dickies from California, and they played Ultra Speed. 
um, really fast stuff. And, and the first version of Paranoid was theirs that I heard. And I was at a party where somebody put Paranoid on by Black Sabbath. And I was like, what the fuck? Why? You've got that on the wrong speed. So I turned the thing on to 78. <laughs> I was like, what, what is this? And they went, it's Black Sabbath. I went, what the fuck's Black Sabbath? They went, it's like metal. And I went, metal? I said, but why are they covering a Dickies song? And they went, who the fuck are the Dickies? And, we, you know, so I, and I was like, oh, my God. So, you know, then thing more ahead, I had this vision of mashing the two things together. What if, you know, Motorhead and Sabbath slammed into the Dickies? What would that be like? So that was kind of my motivation to go. I was really excited about that possibility, punk and metal in the same in the same way, that chaotic style. You know, what I loved about it was I couldn't play an instrument, so I taught myself. Um, and, but the first thing I did after seeing Motorhead was went out and, and bought a Rickenbacker, you know, after trolling around shops because I didn't even know what it was called. I just knew what it looked like. And yeah. everybody would bring a bass as I was going, no, it doesn't look like that. It's really weird. And then eventually I found one. I had no leads, no straps, nothing. I didn't even know how to change strings. But I went to him, put on my Motorhead records and figured everything that Lemmy did out. Uh, and that was probably the only things I couldn't play. But... But that's that's what got me into it. So he he influenced me and his sound and his style of playing, you know. And it's something I kind of embraced. I de- developed my style over the years, of course. Uh, um, but in you know, it's based on rhythmic stuff and rhythm guitar and and all of that. With you know, when you're a three piece, I guess you you have to do a little bit more work during solo patterns and stuff. But I try and you know study. You know Billy Sheenan and and Geddy Lee and and you know all right. kinds of styles and and you know embrace the whole thing and then I just enjoy it as an instrument. But yeah, when we're on stage playing, you know, from the first show I ever did to the last show we've just done, there's something incredible about it, and you feel you know you feel enlightened by it. You 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 got, I played many many different styles of of music, uh, uh, many guest appearances, many shows, many. Uh, different ways of playing and playing many different styles on the, on different bases, but there is something about a, a metal audience, and when you play metal, it's like you know the earth cracking open and the light pouring out. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a way to feel your soul, and yeah, the energy—it's unbeatable. Yeah, I'm going to give you another compliment. Um, I mentioned earlier I love Primeval. I'm even thinking, and I'm actually—I'm going to ask your opinion now on this. I'll, on my my right arm, I'm pretty sure, mate. I've made the decision to get the the the, the script. You know, the picture that's on the front of Primeval as a tattoo. Yes. What do you reckon? Oh yes. Well, you know, <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a few of those floating around, you know. So, uh, and and I'm always really shocked by it when I see those sort of things. You know, I I guess you know those original albums by Venom were halcyon, you know, Black Metal and Welcome Hell in particular, and they look they exploded what I call the first big bang or the second big bang, yeah. if you count the uh, the explosion of the universe being the first one, Venom were the second big bang, uh, and they allowed a hole big enough for everybody to start to get through it and, and to mm. go against the grain. And, um, you know, there was another big bang in the 90s with black metal. But I'm always surprised that, you know, when when, when Venom had got to possess, you know, Mantis felt uninspired and, and subsequently felt it wasn't quite what he where he was at anymore. And it, it just wasn't doing what he thought it was going to be doing for him. And, and his intent had changed. So he just thought, you know, rather than ring 
ring out the cloth or, or flog a dead horse. He thought, fuck it, this is not what it was about. So he walked away. You know, fortunately, we, we got a second chance on Primeval, you know, after Cronin decided it wasn't what he wanted, you know, Calm Before the Storm wasn't the album that people thought Venom should do, and, and he realized then that that was more of his solo, him being a solo artist, so he walked away to do that, you know, and um, and when I came in to do Primeval, it was, you know, me and Jeff were old friends, and so he came back because I was there, and I said I would do it if he was there. And uh, I guess we were enthused again and we could be liberated again. You know, we got a second chance of being kind of teenagers and, and just doing what the fuck we like. So, you know, I'm always surprised at people's response to that album and, and proud of what we did, you know. So I think you should go for the tattoo, but I think you should have it in the middle of your forehead. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see how that one works out. But, yeah, I, I was going to ask you what your thoughts were before I got it. But, yeah, no, now that you said it, mate, I think I've got no choice but to get it. So there you go. And, mate, another uh, – the the finishing part of the compliment that I wanted to offer you was I'm a bass player too and I'm in part a bass player because of your work. So the actual song Primeval, after you hear the, the you know, what we call the STD phone line at the beginning of that song and your wonderful bass line kicks in, you know, with the flange effect – Yes. That was one of the first times I really heard prominent bass playing in heavy metal, outside of Iron Maiden, of course. Oh, awesome, awesome. You know, so... I mean, you know, that was, in, that was inspired. I mean, the, 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 the track itself was actually inspired by uh, Sammy Hager's this, plan, this Planet's on Fire, right. you know, because he plays a guitar riff there, and I used to write most of the stuff on guitar um, for, for the later Atomcraft stuff because it was thrashy. But um, the early stuff, I wrote everything on bass guitar because, you know, that's how Lemmy did his construction. So I wanted to start with bass guitar writing songs. And I, I, I always loved the riff of this Planets on Fire with Sammy Hagar. And, and I took that riff and I, I put it onto the bass and fucked around so it had kind of the same feeling. And when I took it into rehearsal, it was really fast. Um, and, um, you know, there was only me and Abbott on there initially, and I, and I played the thing, and he went, okay, slow it down, slow it down, slow it down, until it got to primeval speed, and I thought, this is like fucking hell, it's like watching paint dry, this thing's <laughs> like not working for me, but then Mantis came in, we played it, he went, oh, that's cool, I've got this riff, which he, which he had from the Deadline, Venom Deadline demos that wasn't used, and he slapped that on the end, and it was like, bang, oh, that works, and you know, it's one of those songs for a player. Um, it, you know, initially it was quite difficult to sing and play it at the same time because it's like, you know, trying to balance two things. You know, it's a particular type of style, I guess, um, when you're singing and playing, if you're playing anything that's more than just straight root notes. But, um, you know, it, it, um, it's one of a, it's a player song. You know, if you're playing it, yes. it's mm. really fun to do. And, you know, and I think that's the difference between what I class, you know, you're a bass player and, I think there's, you know, there's your Cliff Williams and there's your Fleas. Uh, there's, you know, you've got your, uh, um, yeah. uh, you've got your, your Judas Priests uh, uh, and, and then you've got your, you know, Billy Sheenans in, in you know, yes, Dave so you, you, you've got everything you can do. You can you can push along the rhythm, which is which is the job, or you can excite yourself and be a player as well. And I think the difference is sometimes people are in bands and other times people are musicians. And that's why I think uh, uh, I would always encourage the musician, the musician rather than just being a band 
Um, you know, Rob Torillo is an amazing bass player. Yes. You know, the stuff he did was suicidal and, you know, everything. And uh, plays a five-string bass. And I went to see him when he first joined Metallica. I was invited to a special show in London. And I went to see them. And uh, he just played all root notes. And I was like, wow, as a five-string fucking yeah. maniac bass player, that must be killing his soul. Oh, I, I feel for him some nights, to be honest with you, because I know how strict James and Lars are on the bass. as through uh, his predecessor Jason, or he's the person he replaced, Jason Newstead, and yeah. mate, it's I don't know what it is. Don't get me wrong, I'm not rating on Metallica, but I just find so much to dislike about them these days. And um, having a I bass, think, yeah, yeah I, I think you know when you had when you know having a bass player like a, a, a Cliff and and praising his style and his attack and his orchestral way of approaching the bass and all of that, and then to take Jason. And then have an album like Justice where you you mix his bass out of it completely is I don't get that I don't quite get that. Of course you want to contribute to the sound and it has to be a certain way, but then that should be up to the player himself to contribute what he feels is working, you know. And 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 I I kind of think the same thing, you know. I think it's great having Rob there, and I and I am a Metallica fan, and they are friends of mine. But I just think wow if if. You know, if I was Torillo, I mean, good for your bank account, but is are you going to be satiated as an artist? You know, and, and in the same way that Jason ends up leaving because yeah. he's not mm. allowed to do a solo thing. You know, so you're saying, well, I don't want you to do a solo thing to express yourself. I also don't want you to express yourself while you're in the band. Just play the notes I'm telling you to play. It's like, well, you can't say that to a musician. You can say that to a guy who wants to be in a band. You can say, just play this and just play this. But you can't say that to a musician. It's like saying to a guitarist, don't play a solo here. But I, want, I haven't played a solo yet. I don't give a fuck. I don't want a solo, so don't play any solos. You know, the guitarist eventually is going to leave and go to another band because he's going to want to play solos, you know. Um, I think that's a bit strange, yeah. I'm not trying to offend anybody by this statement here, but as I said, I am a fan of yours in particular and the albums that you played on through Venom. But, mate, to be honest, I felt that you offered more for somebody who was a musician who wanted to study bass playing than what even Cliff Burton did. No, as I say, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I have studied both your playing and Cliff's playing, and I've played along to the Metallica records quite a bit. I've played a number of the Metallica songs, but I find your stuff is often harder to keep up with. Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's kind of a, like a, you know, and I, I, you know, I don't want people to be going, he's a wanky shit, what you're talking about, of course because they will and some will go no I, I agree but but I, I you know I, it's something that you know I never considered um I never considered any restriction on my playing and I I, I listened to absolutely everything I could and anytime I heard funky bass playing or something I just tried to take those influences and do something with them and thought I love the way that steps up I love the way that that phrasing works and try to employ them in, in my playing, you know. I mean, I do play guitar too, so that probably you do. Yeah, that's right. yeah. Has, has an influence on what uh, on how I look at it too. But um, I'm very aware of the rhythm that needs to be addressed, but I'm also very aware of the accenting of what Mantis does, you know. So I, mm. I play between the two. And I, and I think, you know, it's, it's um, <clears throat> when you have two... If you have dual guitars in a band, um, you know, like, or you listen to Maiden, you know, everybody's moving, everybody's yeah. moving, and that gives it, I don't know, a kind of excitement as well. Of course, you can do like an ACDC and have a blues 
feel to it, or even a Judas Priest where you have the dual guitars. But if you don't have dual guitars, then I guess that's where the bass becomes the second guitar and the bass. Do you know what I that's mean? That's right. The bass, I've always found you act as the rhythm guitarist as well as a bass player. That's what your playing yes. does. Yeah, that's it. You know, when 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 phrases when when Mantis establishes the riff phrases and then he has to he wants to move to do something harmonious, then it's my duty to take over the riff phrases. So you are switching between the two, and you know it's why I have a I have a quite a full sound, quite a deep sound, but also I have a, a treble sound on it as well, and, and a little bit of distortion, so that you know I can sit down and I can step up and 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 hopefully cover the two. The two places, and of course, for me as a player, that's much more exciting as well. I get to really enjoy. And these days, what's the pleasurable is like you know, I don't, I'm not concentrating as much as you would in the old days. You know, yeah. it's like it just it flows much better. I always loved seeing those guitarists and stuff, you know, and those players who you know would close their eyes when they were doing a solo, and their mouth would be singing the notes. <laughs> and I think, how the fuck do they know what they're doing? Because I would be staring at the fretboard, thinking it's there and there and there. And now I, you know, forty years later, I understand it's it's not about the technicality; it's about feeling it. If you feel the music and you feel the notes. It, then it plays itself, you know, you just relax, don't tighten up, don't focus too much on being technically correct, if you make a mistake, you make a mistake, but keep the flow going, let the mu music flow out of you, through your fingers and onto the instrument, and Absolutely. then it can, it can do anything you want it to do. So Wikipedia lists that you play the excellent Aria Pro 2 SB, which incidentally is the same bass that Billy Gould from Faith No More used uh, on That's a lot of their albums, is that still the case? Now, now I, I've, uh, you know, I've been through many, many, I mean, my Rickenbacker 4001 uh, uh, blonde stereo was one of my favorites. And, uh, you know, I, I've got an original Overwater um, uh, that I absolutely loved until one of the airlines snapped the neck. So now I won't take her out because she's too delicate. Yeah. Uh, and then I had this HK model from Germany, a Z model, which was like this pointy kind of BC Richie thing, but um, didn't have the best pickups. It wasn't the best intonation, but I kicked the fuck out of it. So <laughs> she seemed to like the damage and just kept going. Uh, so that looked good. But now I've been endorsed by a company from uh, um, uh, Holland, uh, Belgian Holland, called uh, Bo L, and they made me. Uh, uh, they've given me two models that are called the Big Generator, which are just absolute beasts. They brought one to me on the last tour and uh, said, "Would you like to try this out?" And uh, it, it, you know, it's got a, a an active switch on it. And I went on, and the bottom end is incredible, but the sweep through the mid tones to the highs, and she feels like a beast. You know, she's going to take a pounding, and I do treat them like they're, you know, like they're going to get beaten up when yeah, I play yeah. it. they've got to be able to handle and, what you do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I took this thing on just to try it out, and, and uh, you know, halfway through the song, I thought, uh, we got to the solo section, I thought, well, I'll, pop, I'll pop the active pop and just uh, see what she does, and I, I pulled out the, the switch toggle, hit the bottom note, and the fucking amp blew up, and I, so when I came <laughs> off, the guy was like, Oh, fucking hell, I'm so sorry. I went, no, I'll take two of them. Thank you very much. We've got a deal. I said, that's exactly <laughs> what I need. Something as monstrous as that. I just need to get better amps now. So um, that's kind of where I'm at now. What sort of amps do you play these days? Are you using the standard SVT rig on tour? Yeah, the Pro 3 I quite like, you know, but I, I have like a Rackman Sands 
So, um, oh, yeah. I mean, I was playing with a Sans uh, pedal um, and DIing from there and using it as the driver amp, uh, but only because you could carry it around everywhere. So when we go on tour, if we didn't have a rider, so we weren't taking our own gear, it kind of didn't mean, it didn't matter what amp anybody brought, as long as it was a power amp, because then I'd drive, the sound was all coming from the Sans boat. And then um, I started using the uh, um, Pro 3, the uh, Ampeg Pro 3, and I quite liked the tones on it, the tonality. So then I just used the sands as a stump box. Um, wow, but then I yeah. bought a rack, a rack mount sands, and the difference is massive. You know, it's much more controlled um, uh, from the, the distortions and the blending. So yeah. um, that's basically what I do. I put the rack mount sands as the amp and then put it through the, the SVT if I need any EQing on there. Um, and so, yeah, it's working really, really well. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Z Digital. The song that you can hear in the background is called Kissing the Beast. It's from the 1992 release from Venom called The Wastelands. The songwriting is credited to Anthony Bray, Tony Dolan, and Jeff Dunn. Okay, as I mentioned in the introduction, it was at this point that I bid farewell to Dolan as he had a flight to catch to Sardinia for a performance. Between our conversations... I had the fortune and opportunity to catch up with Jeff Dunn, a.k.a. Mantis. So you will hear in my conversation with Dolan that it starts with me asking for his take on the Sardinian performance. Let's go. I think it was the day after you guys got back from Sardinia, so I'll ask you, mate, how, how was the... You told me it was a bit of a biker gig. How did that go? Yeah, well, yeah. The, the, um, uh, you know, the guy who... The promoter... The, Promo, uh, the agent who did it before we worked with before, and uh, we did one of them before in uh, Italy, like a biker rally thing, and uh, just great, you know. They they kind of like, you know, it's another one of those anomalies. They like um, family orientated, <laughs> like yes. everybody's the kids and everybody's running around. It's like, wow, it's 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 another one of those things, you know. We talked about before, but the the. The, what people perceive and what the actual reality is, you know, yep. it's the guy at the bank who wears a suit and a tie who goes home and strips off and covers himself in baby oil and rubs himself in <laughs> banana skins while he's watching rabbits shagging on online. <laughs> Whereas they think the guy with the motorbike and all the piercing is a nutcase, you know, yeah. it's like he, no, he's the normal he's guy. He's the normal guy, yeah. It's the other one. And so, yeah, it was a really great family atmosphere. Very warm, um, uh, and you know, just the, the loveliest reaction. And we took pictures with all the kids, and and uh, it was really great. And uh, they got me to. They said we had a meal, and they said, "Oh, you would you try a speciality of Sardinia?" And I said, "Sure." And they went to it's warm cheese, and I went, "Oh, warm cheese! Oh, cool!" So we went across with I brought Abaddon, and we they brought out this big cheese ball thing with no top on, and it with all this mush inside, and they went, you know, have it with the bread, so, and I was going, so what is it, and they were warm cheese, warm cheese, I was like, okay, speciality, delicious, so I had some on the bread, and I was like, oh yeah, warm, yeah, probably because of the heat, but I said, yo, is there chilies in it or something, they were like, yes, yes, of course there wasn't, there's the English translation, yes, yes, warm cheese, good, and I was like, yeah, really good, and then I looked down into the cheese, and it wasn't warm, it was worm. And I was oh, like, shit. Okay. what is yeah. that? They went, the worms, and it was maggots. So what they do is they make this cheese, then uh. they get impregnated with fly larvae, 
and then the maggots eat the cheese and shit it out, and then they when it's ripe, oh, they take the lid off and then they eat it with bread. So it's it's shit out maggot cheese, <laughs> and that's oh, what they was. I said, oh right, you said warm cheese. I thought you meant it was hot, and they went. Now the worms, the worms, but they meant what the maggots. How did, how did were... you go with it? Did you sort of eat it out of respect, or did you sort of go, guys, look, I can't do this? <laughs> no, it was. I, I just, you know, bread shoved it in my gob, and then I looked down and thought, oh fuck! But it was good. <laughs> it tasted really good. So I'm gonna try. What I thought, I said maybe. I said to the organizer, I said no, it was really good. And then I should have checked first because all the Sardinians, particularly the women, I went, oh, I had the worm cheese. They went, I don't eat that shit. And I was like, <laughs> that's a bad sign if the people who live there don't eat it. Yeah. But I said, you know, I'm going to go home and I go back to England. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to pass everything through somebody's body and then see what it tastes like, like a full English <laughs> breakfast. And then see, I said, who knows? It could be good. It could be good. Maybe if I fed my, uh, if I fed my Sunday dinner to the cat, and then scooped it into a ball. It could, I don't know, maybe it elevates it to another. Well, there is there is the cat shit coffee from Malaysia. Have you heard of it? It's exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've tried it, and it's like, okay, yeah, I can see this. They pass the beans through the cat. It's like I don't know if it makes any difference to the coffee. No, uh, but so, yeah, bizarre, bizarre. My, my wife, her, her mother's from the Philippines. She's Filipino, right? So we go to the Philippines quite a bit. We're actually going in a couple of days' time again, and they just think okay. I'm some dumb white guy whenever I go over there. It suits me, to be honest with you, because it's quite funny seeing what they try to do to me. So yeah, I'll, play, oh, yeah. I'll play dumb, yeah. So, But I know all about the culture because obviously my wife's from that culture, and there's this thing called balot, and balot is just disgusting. Too. I've never had it. I couldn't bring myself to eat it, but it's a um, like an egg. It's an embryo of a chicken in an egg, fully formed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And... And I'll be like at Boracay or somewhere like that. And, you know, a lady will come up to me and go, would you like something to eat? And it'll be Balot. And I say, you know, I know what that is. You know, <laughs> and of course, you can see people in the shops and around point, like looking to see if I'm going to eat it and then work. Tell me when I'm <laughs> eating it, what it actually is. But because I never get to that point, I just go, guys, don't even bother. You know, just got my wife. Oh. She's, one of, she's one of you. <laughs> so I know all about it. <laughs> it's like that. It's like that. They do that thing. Uh, um, I don't know where about. Maybe it's Singapore or, or Shanghai. Or but they do that blue egg. It's like the blue egg. You know, it's like a hundred-year-old egg. I mean, they're oh, not hundred-year-old. Yeah. And, and you, you de-shell it and it's blue. I mean, it's like so, it's blue, blue. And it tastes like a, a kind of blue cheese, but yep. it's like, man, it takes a while to put it down. Look, it takes I, a while. yeah, my, my wife's got some pretty exo exotic heritage, and her father's from Croatia and her mother's Filipino, so you can imagine what we eat like at home. To be honest with you, mate, I can't eat a lot of the food much to a disgust, because it's, yeah. it's, it's basically Croatian food cooked in this Filipino style, effectively, which is unlike any other food you'd probably eat anywhere else. Initially, yeah, I could sort of a, do a lot of it, but... Um, Croatia of, Oh, yeah, lots of gizzards and guts, I can assure you. Lots of liver and kidney and all sort of shit, and I'm like, I can't do it. No, I can't do it. I'm just a plain old white guy. I can't do this stuff, sorry. There's a bit of a difference between some places take the, take the meat off and chuck the carcass. Other things seem to take the meat off, throw the meat away, and then just dig all the innards out with a screw and put it in a pan. It's like... Okay, interesting. I see where you're going there. Yeah. Uh, when in Portugal, they have a they have a particular dish. Uh, when I was working over there before Jeff went and lived there, uh, um, and it's uh, it's based on the fact that when the when they were discovering the world, the Portuguese, 
um, the king wanted them to take, got everybody in Portugal, which is not a big country, to bring all livestock to feed the ships. It was like 600 ships. So practically every animal, um, they killed and cut the meat and stuck it on the ships for the sailor. So they would have six, seven months or whatever it is yeah. around the world and have the food just in case. But all it left was the shit bits, like the nuts and the testes and the livers and the hearts. And so they were like, oh, well, what are we going to do? And they said, well, we'll discover some. So they made this dish of offal with all this stuff, and it's really, really poppy. And they put, like, uh, white beans in there um, and uh, fucking yep. horrendous. And everybody goes, oh, it's so delicious. Try it. And I just, I mean, I tried, but I just, the spoon wouldn't, my hand was shaking. I was like, yep. no, it won't be mouth. Just won't go in my mouth. Yeah. But for them, it's like yummy, and you think, wow, you know, out of necessity, they go, I, but I, I'd still prefer a steak. Something from the outside is much better, you know. I'm with you on that one there. Give me, I'm pretty, a pretty traditional bloke that way, mate. Give me a steak and some veggies, mate, and I'm pretty good. That'll do me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm not fussy, but I'm also very simple. That'll do, that'll do, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool, mate. Look, I, I'd better start asking you questions about venom otherwise people are going to be thinking as though we're uh, talking about cooking or something like that but um yeah, well, a cooking show could be extension to your new radio show yeah metal cooking i have metal a friend cooking. in rio i have a friend in rio who's a chef very good chef worked at a, a top restaurant and he's he for the last uh, i think six months now he got a radio he got a tv show called the metal chef and that's what he does. He just awesome. does cooking for metalheads, and it's fucking brilliant. It's brilliant. So I'm gonna yeah. do an episode when I go over. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. he, he's brilliant. He's brilliant, and it's all about things like that. You know, how does a metalhead cook and eat, and what do you eat? And, and really brilliant idea. So I'm just saying it could be. Well, know, we could. We could. It's a, it's an idea that's for sure. Because when I left my my job at Telstra only a couple of months back, two of the books they gave to me were metal cookbooks. They're actually out there. They actually found them and gave them to me. So yeah. You know, I mean, but, you know, it works. It works. You know. Actually, you know what I will do, mate. What I will do is, mate, I'll, I'll do this exchange via email afterwards, mate. But send me a recipe of something that you do like to eat, and I'll post it along with the podcast awesome. episode. I'll do that for sure. I've got to do it now that we've been talking about it. Okay. Okay. Brilliant. <laughs> no matter how simple it is. No matter how simple or complicated it is for that matter. You know. Yeah. <laughs> how to cook an orange on a tour bus? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, talking, you mentioned Tour Bus. I've, I've done a bit of, um, I watched your Tour Bus episode, your digital Tour Bus episode. Oh, um, yes, I made Shepard's Pie with an orange and a, a jar of something. I thought yours was the most informative that I've seen, and I'm not just saying that because I'm chatting to you. I mean, I looked at Thy Art as Murders as well and a few of the Aussie bands that are over there too just to see what they get up to. God, if anything I learned about Thy Art as Murder, it's how much bloody weed they can smoke when they're on tour, which was just incredible to <laughs> yeah. me because I think you'd... I, would, I mean, I've done a little, not a touring, but travelling myself, and I try to eat as healthily as I can on on any sort of uh, trip abroad, so to speak. But yours was really informative, and I really got the sense, too, that between the three of you, you've got a, an excellent camaraderie. You're getting along really, very well and living out of each other's pockets, as you tend to on tour. Well, yeah, I think the thing is, I mean, what helps is, of course, the length of time we've known each other, the association we've had. But also, I think that uh, we're from a particular part of England where... You know, we we have a particular sense of humour, and wherever you find Geordies, they snap into that same sense of humour. We take the piss out of everything, including ourselves, because you know life's too short. So yeah. I think we find a very easy, easy, uh, comfortable environment. And and when one starts taking the piss, we all just go straight <laughs> with it and understand it. 
But I think that's, that's it. I think it's understanding, you know, understanding each other. When a guy needs to be quiet, when a guy's a little bit pissed yeah. off, when a guy needs support, you know, you know. And so we allow, we have the, we know those tolerances of each other. So we allow that, you know, and uh, it keeps you moving forward, you know. So we're never in combat with each other all the time. We may join forces to be in combat with somebody, or we may be in combat individually. Gang up on one of the. There's three of you there, mate. So there's always another yeah, form of team. But it's usually there. on the outside. It's never within our camp, you know. It's uh -huh. never within the three of us. So we 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 have that and. Um, and yeah, you've got to do that when you're when you're you know when you're you're doing something like that because it is a long time. You are in this. Everybody's in one bedroom, if you like, or one living room, and uh, and so you can get on top of each other. But knowing each other allows you those tolerance. It's like you were just saying about your wife, respectively. Or if you link with somebody, you know, um, you know, a gang of you guys go, let's go and live together, and you you, you know. You will go, ah, fuck it, we won't give a shit. And all of a sudden, one guy never hoovers the living room or something. You don't give a fuck for the first few months. And after that, it, all it does is piss you off. Yeah. And then you're going to end up having an argument. But you never fucking, I'm always... Exactly, you unload, don't you? Yeah, you hold everything in and then exactly. unload. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one second. Yeah. The overgun. At the top of Middleton Road. Yeah. Post pop, yes. Sorry about that. No, yeah, so I, I, I guess um I guess yeah we, we bypass all that sort of stuff because of the air, so it makes it much easier, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. And hey, when we when we were chatting last, there are a few questions that I didn't get to ask you and, and I'd love to ask them of you now if that's okay. So what I, what I want to do, mate, is I want to obtain your thoughts on the albums that you produced under the Venom Monica through the late eighties and early nineties to give fans a broader context of your role in the significant legacy that surrounds Venom. So yeah. we did talk a little bit about Primeval, but I will ask for, I'll give you the floor for as long as you want to take it. Tell the audience all about Primeval. Well, you know, the uh, uh, my inception into, into Venom was obviously they, they lost their way somewhat uh, uh, from Possessed. Mantis, bit disillusioned, uh, removed himself, uh, and then they carried on with two guitars and did Calm Before the Storm. But it was a very different... It was a very different approach, and I think, I think it, it it didn't feel to the fans or kind of to the to the to the band members that it was Venom uh, in the same way. And I think that that's it. You know, bands change and and they progress. You know, um, you have uh, um, comparatively, you might have a Slayer who stays Slayer. And they may do a good album and a not-so-good album and a good album and a not-so-good album, but they're still the same band. It's just how people perceive the music. Yep. You know, for every being in blood is a diabolist in music or something or whatever, you know? <laughs> and and uh, then, you have a, uh, then you have a Metallica who, you know, are consistent, and all of a sudden they drop oh God, bombs, yeah. which are like completely, what the fuck, Where, where's that going? You know, yeah. and when they when they get closer, like Text Magnetic on the new album, when they get closer to the, what they were as a band, a thrash band, which everybody you know hails, and that's what inspired them initially. Then people hail that as they great, great, they're back on track again. Yes, um, I think there's a point I like to think where people sometimes stop being the Sex Pistols and become the Rolling Stones, and you know it's because of it's because of time. You know, as soon as people start going, well, they're legendary, bang, that's it. Oh, I'm legendary. I'm Mick Jagger now, or I'm Keith Richards. I'm no longer those young, spotty teenagers screaming at the state, you know? 
And I think that kind of was what happened with Calm Before the Storm. It was like, well, you know, we are this band now and we can do what we like. So let's just do something different. And and, and I guess the idea of the late 80s with Dave Lee Roth doing his solo thing, yes. there was a lot of that kind of middle ground. I think that's where Conrad started to lean towards that, you know. Uh, thought he'd embrace the humour more, the rock and roll like ethos, and he went, obviously, to America. When the deal was on offer, and this was when Primeval happened, was, you know, the off, was an offer there to do a Venom album. And, and Abaddon explained to me that, you know, the reason that he wanted to approach me to get me in was because I understood the band. I'd been around all of that time. I knew them as people. I knew them as music. But I also knew what I liked about them as a band with it sonically and what fans liked about that sonically. And they didn't have the same perception because they're on the inside. So you just write a piece of music and everybody goes, God, that sucks. And you think, fuck, I thought it was really good. Or you write a piece of music and they go, oh, my God, that's a masterpiece. And you go, really? Um, so you can't tell the, the fan base. And he was very aware, as they all were, that the fan base was going, what the fucking hell are you doing? So he went to, you know, I can't see it, but I know you see it because you're on the outside. So if you come inside, can you basically get us back? Give us our mojo back, yeah. 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 And so I, you know... I didn't really need to do research, but for a month solid, every single night, I just went to sleep with Welcome to Hell on. Just Welcome to Hell. I put it on Shit. to let that reabsorb myself and think, what do I love about this? What's the aspects? I love the punky attitude. I love the, the possible threshold bushing where we're, we're on the verge of chaos. Um, and it could be controlled, it could be chaotic, but you don't know. I like the fact that it makes you excited and scared at times that you, you know, certainly then, not now, but then. So all of those things I looked at. And one of the first tracks I wrote was uh, Carnivorous, you know, um, and, and I, it had all of that. Once I realized that's the impetus and we played that together, mm -hmm. the rest of it just happened, you know. So I guess that was the... That was the impetus with there was to 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 have them feel that energy again and feel that inspired again. And thankfully, because me and Jeff have been so close for so many years, you know, I didn't want to go in if he wasn't there. Um, because I said it's not it's not I don't think it's gonna work if there's not two of you at least. Yeah. So Jeff coming back in because I was there meant that he was enthused again, unlike Possessed or War was Satan, where he was losing that enthusiasm. Yep. Uh, you know, and Tony, where they were lost on Calm Before the Storm, we felt the enthusiasm again. So it was like the light had been turned on again. And so yep. all of that energy went into that record. And that's why it was hailed as like one of the records from the band, regardless of no Kronos voice on there, because the energy we managed to transmit. Agreed, yeah. Well, I think it gave the band... I'm a, I was very young at the time, mate. I think I was about 10 years of age when it came out. So I got into it not long after, about two or three years after it came out. But it was my first, as, as I discussed last time, it was my first experience with Venom. And it's actually the template by which I, I measure every other Venom record by. Um, oh, brilliant. And it's, it's so, it's interesting to hear that you mentioned that you listened uh, to the first album to get inspired on this one here. Because to me, they sound very different. But I understand what you're saying. The spirit and the energy is there. That's it, you know, yeah. and it's the same approach which we've used on Arve is, you know, and it's what I'm trying to translate to people in a live situation, you know, 
you hear a piece of music, it makes you soulful. It makes you remember your mom or your, you know, your somebody or, you, or where you lived or whatever. You know, it affects us. It's a soundtrack to our life. Mm. And so, you know, it, 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 can you get that emotion again? You know, and does it need to be that singer, that band, that way? It could be a good cover or it could just be lift music. But if it's that melody, you know, sometimes it still affects you. And so it may push you to want to hear the original, but but it does affect you, and that's the key. So listening to Welcome to Hell wasn't to listen to the production or listen to the structures of the songs so much. It was to feel what they, that moment that they had, you know, because you can't, you can't recapture that moment as a, an artist, as a performer or as a, a painter or whatever. You know, if you play Hamlet, every night's different because you're different every night. Yes. You know, little nuances change. If you do a show, every show is different. When someone said to me once, we do I know, 35 shows in a row, and they said, don't you get bored doing the same thing? I said, how can I get bored? Every night's different. They said, but you're playing the same set. I said, yeah. but not the same people. The mm. people are different. This guy doesn't live where the other people lived, and he's never seen us. And they, so I said, if yeah. the audience is different, so is the show. Um, and so it's that kind of thing. It's about the experience. And I wanted to absorb those young guys and that vivaciousness they had when that happened, when it recorded. Mm. Not the end, but that. And that's what we took into Primeval. Um, the production was a bit more advanced and, and the structures, I guess, are slightly different. But, but the energy and the, the passion for it was there. And 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 that's what we've, we've done on the new album as well, you know, because yep. I said, this is the key. This is the key. If we if we can convince someone on a live show when we play the first ever Venom single that it doesn't matter if the sound is moving them, the feeling is moving them, then that's what it's all about. That's what it, that's the connective tissue. It is, and it's. You mentioned something in there too about the live performance, okay, and that lay people or non-musicians go, you know, how can you possibly enjoy doing thirty dates in a row if you're playing the same songs or what have you? You know, I listen, I watched. I only did this last night or the night before, actually. The recording that's on YouTube, actually, but you've got a live recording video of yourselves from 1990 on YouTube. Yes, yes, yeah. from the 90 video. Yeah, Jesus, you can that was, feel the first well, yeah. you can feel the energy coming through that, mate, particularly in, in your performance there. That's a dominating performance by you, mate. You impose yourself on that stage. But that's born of years of, of experience through live performance in front of all sorts of different crowds. So that particular recording on YouTube, what city was that recorded in? That was um, that was the Live 90 video. We did the first tour to promote Primeval, and that was actually London's marquee. Oh. Where, I mean, I played the original marquee, and then that got closed, and then they moved it to Charing Cross Road, and, and that's where we shot the video for that. Okay. Uh, but, he, but, yeah, that energy, that, that was it. You know, I think I learned very quickly that, um, that you know, uh, being arrogant on stage used to piss me off. So I, I, I didn't want someone to just be a cocksucker on stage and be arrogant. You know, it's like, oh, fuck off. You know, but I also didn't want them to be uh, passive on stage and, you know, it, to be thankful, to be humble, great, like Dio, what a guy, you know. But to also know that they're controlling it and know that they're, it's their space, yep. you know. Yes. And I guess that's kind of the way I use the demolition man, you know, is that um, he's the, he's, uh, if Tony Dolan, you know, is 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 
I try and be as uh, 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 as um, as sensible as I can and, and 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 respectful as I can and everything else. But when I'm when I get to be myself as a demolition man, I don't have any rules. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks or says or does. It makes no difference to me. If I want to smoke, I'll smoke. If I want to drink, I'll drink. If I want to do that, I'll do that. I just go where I want, do what I want. That's what I have to take on stage because the music demands that of me. Mm. You know, it demands me to tell you. I'm not asking you to, to be part of it. I'm telling you you're part of it. I'm telling you yeah. you are part of it. You know, so yep. it's that it's that kind of energy that you push forward in and you know it releases the audience as well when a young audience particularly younger people are struggling to let themselves uh, be recognized an individual but also older people who maybe are being conformed all the time they want to just go somewhere where they can just go fuck it yeah. you know and i go you can say fuck it if that's what you want do it now, and then they're like, "Fuck it, louder, fuck it." It's like that's it. Who gives a shit? Let's go. It's that kind of. Thing. Hey, have you been watching Twin Peaks at all? There's a reason I asked the question. It's but new, the new Twin Peaks, yeah. I find the bands that David Lynch has selected very boring, to be frank. And whenever a band like that appears at a gig that I'm at, I tend to go back to the bar and start slamming beers. But that's it. That's you and everybody else. That's what happens if you don't engage them. If you don't engage somebody, they'll walk away. You know. Uh, uh, you know. We just did um, <coughs> Sarlacc in Lyon. Yep. A great festival. Uh, we went on after Metal Church and uh, the ACDC drummer guy, and 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 um, <laughs> you know they, they they. So we had you know. A, pit going and diving and it was chaos and, and it was a great show, great atmosphere, great feeling. But I could, you know, I, I look across and, and you you can see people just standing there. Mm. These people are nuts, the black metal, and they're just standing there. And you think, well, it could be moving them. It might not be moving them. They could be judging us. They might not be judging us. I don't know. I'm not, they're fucking miles away. I can't, mm. I can't speak to them. But they're not walking away. So there's something that's engaging them because if they were uninterested, you know, because I, I've had a, I played with people who've gone like, fuck, you know, what a shit audience. You know, even in the theatre, when I was doing theatre, they'd come up and go, fuck, an audience is shit tonight. and go, the, the audience is shit. How, do they, how are an audience shit? I mean, how's an audience yeah. shit? They came to see you. They can't <laughs> be shit. You can be shit. You can be not as good as last night or better than the night before. Mm. So, but it's your engagement of them. They're passive. They pay their ticket. Now do your thing. And if you get them, they're a great audience. If you don't get them, they're not a bad audience. You just didn't do what you could do. Yeah. Uh, and and so um, when I when I see people and, and people go, did you see all those people just standing around? I mean, they just fucking stand staring. It's like yeah. And they go, well. What the fuck? Maybe you know they went into it. I said no, they were into it because if they weren't standing staring at us, they'd be standing in a car park drinking beer, ignoring us. <laughs> so you know, I said it's, it's it's as long as they're there, they're engaging in it, and that just spurs you on. And then many times, you know, I always go like someone go before a show, they go, Are "You ready?" And I go, "I'm always ready for war." And that's yes. how I look at it. I put my demolition man hat head on and I'm ready for I'm going into the octagon and I'm ready for it and I'm trained and I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go out fighting and that's the energy I take on and the minute you push that into the audience they're like 
they absorb it and they push it back again. And that's what you're getting, you know. Uh, if, if you look at a, a UFC uh, fight or you look at a boxing match, you know, it, it's like if there's one guy boxing and the other guy's just getting hit, it's shit. Yeah. You need them both boxing. You need boxing. the contest, Even, yeah. You need a contest. And one guy's energy pushes the other guy's energy and that's what makes it exciting. Then you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And that's how I look at the live show. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen. Many times in the career, I've gone on stage and people went, fuck off. And you got, mm. and you got, I heard that, you know? So now I'm going to play the whole fucking show to him. And at the end of it, you know, he's smiling, going brilliant. You know, it's like, it's all part of it. So in, in the early days, just yeah. a quick one, the yeah. early days on that live 90 video tour, yeah. we played a place in Amsterdam called the Melkway. Load of metalheads in there. We just released uh, Primeval. Really good show, kind of sold. I don't know if it was sold out, but it was packed in there. And then all of a sudden, a fucking army of skinheads came in. Mm. And you feel the atmosphere change. And then someone came and went, oh, fucking hell, all the skinheads have turned up. You know, and uh, they were going, this is not going to end well. As soon as we started, they were down the front, you know, really giving all the sides and stuff, but where they, you know, took their shirts off the whole naked body. By the end of the show, they were on stage with me, and we were all going nuts and jumping in and everything else. Yeah. And that could have gone two ways. That yes. could have gone two ways. But I embraced the fact that they came down. I embraced the fact that they wanted it to be even more aggressive. So I let I gave them what they wanted, you know, and that was what won them over. Yeah, you went it with it, but. You read the situation really well as well because a situation like that, to your point with skinheads, can actually turn south for the audience very quickly. And you're almost the captain of that ship in that situation, aren't you? That that stops being a gig in one respect and starts turning into a vessel or something like that. And you're the captain of that ship, and you determine the tone of the evening from that point on, don't you? Now, is that is, did you grow up in playing some pretty violent gigs and the like, so you knew what to do, or is that just something that came naturally to you in that scenario? I went to I went to violent gigs, you know. I mean, uh, you know, in the when I came back from Canada, I was like. Uh, what we classed in England as a hippie, you know, my hair was long, I had uh, flares and, and uh, plaids, plaid and corduroys, and I was all Ted Nugent and Kiss. Mm. Um, and I walked in 1978, I walked into a school disco uh, where there was all these people, and one had like a black uh, refuse sack on, I'm sure, and they were jumping up and down to this like noise that I couldn't distinguish what it was, and I was like, what the fuck are these people doing? And they were like, well, it's punk, and I was like, and what the fuck is punk? And what, why are they jumping up and down? And, you know, I got introduced to it. It was a shock. But very quickly, I then realized the energy, the release of the energy that I never had before. I was just being a passive young person, just like, you know, fishing and smoking weed and wandering around in the summer with no shoes on. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, these people screaming and bouncing around. And like it was like, what the fuck? And the energy consumed me. And then I went to all these punk shows, you know, and I was like, you know, 13, 14 get it, with these older guys. I lived in a really bad neighborhood and all the older guys would go to all these punk shows and, and they'd like get us in and open the doors. And so I was in amongst like 20, 21, 22 year old guys when I was like 14, getting the shit kicked out of me at a fucking Angelic Upstarts gig, you know, yeah. they were fucking nuts. So, you know, and I'd come away bruised and bloody and ripped clothes just thinking that was the fucking best thing is ever happened that was amazing you know because it was all about that energy and it just was like a whirlwind and 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 kind of uh i guess i took that that on stage you know i you know i had a disruptive childhood you know and uh you know 
my old man, you know, for want of a better word, was a kind of street fighter, mm. you know, uh, much to his uh, um, pleasure and his disdain, you know, and um, and I guess, you know, just that kind of temperament. And I thought, you know, rather than use this temperament constantly, which I ended up doing on weekends, you know, um, I just take it on stage and then release yep. it. And then actually, it's cathartic for me, but it's also cathartic for the audience. It's like, and I always said on those early shows where, you know, I like nut things and, you know, all sorts covered in blood and stuff. Um, and and I, I, I didn't really care uh, what happened, you know, and I played with busted fingers and everything, you know, it's like, fuck it, who gives a shit? Because I would see, you know, uh, the same kind of thing. Nasty Ronnie did it with the TVs, but see Iggy Pop and think, fucking hell, just get lost in the world. I mean, not as far as J.J. Uh, Allen and cover yourself in your own poo, but uh, <laughs> doing that. But, but, Good old J.J. Allen, mate. Yeah, my exactly. God. Yeah. But, you know, to to kind of release yourself in that way. And, and I remember seeing in a very early interview when they said about that kind of uh, uh, um, situation. And I said, look, if all of these people come into the show, go freaking nuts and slam and jump and crazy and, you know, maybe a bit of blood or whatever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're all smiling. If they go home and they don't rob someone, beat someone up or nick something. That's a really good point right there. Brilliant. You know, they go home satiated and happy and they're, they're glad to be alive and they've had a brilliant night. All of that angst, all of that... You know, anger, all of that, that, whatever it is. an outlet, isn't it? Like good metal and good punk is an outlet for emotional dissonance. That's really what it is, isn't it? Totally, completely, completely. It's a, it's, it's a way to relieve ourselves. If you've had a shit day, you go home, you generally put some kind of music on. It could be something to make you calm. It could be something to make you scream. If you're going, when people go out on a Friday, even when they're going to shows, you see them in car parks. They're blasting sounds out of the car. Mm. They're already trying to get themselves up there yep. so that they can pop when they get into the show, you know. Yep. Um, and, and that's why, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it pushes our emotions up and down. And that's what I feel the energy. That's what happens when we're there. So I take that from the stage. And you're very right about the captaincy thing. It's it, not going, oh, he said on show anything like that. It's not that kind of thing. Mm. It's that from the stage, I can see everything you can't see. Yeah. So I can see if someone's fighting over there. I can see if this girl's getting squashed Spot here. On. I can see if someone's fell down there. So you can guide it, you know. Um, uh, it, it, it's good. It's good. So, mate, tell us about the Tia Solar Part EP, because I think out of all of the albums that you could, well, I know it's not an album, it's an EP, but all of the releases that you contributed to uh, to date, that's probably the one that we hear the least about. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I, I, they wanted to do, you know, compared to the, the, they did the album and then we did the tour. And then they want, they shot the, the DVD, the video, sorry, not DVD, video. Yep. And then they wanted to put an EP out to also go in hand with the, uh, with the video. So we did tell you Solar Pod. And basically, the, we took track, uh, School Days came off the album. And then we put on Hellbent for Leather, which was live off the uh, DVD. And then we, we had an overspill of two songs. Usually when we've been recording, mm-hmm. you end up writing more than you need. And, uh, and so we have a surplus. So we had uh, The Ark and Civilized, which didn't make the album. And that was purely because of the playing time on the album. 
because we re-recorded Live Like an Angel, so that went on as an extra track on the CD version of Primeval. Then on Primeval, it was 20 minutes aside to maximize the volume, which left us two tracks left over. So right. the idea was, why don't we then pull one thing off the album, another thing off the live, and then put these two tracks on, and that's the EP. Uh, and so that's kind of how that went down. But I mean... Uh, you know, I loved the EP. I think it looked good. You know, yep. um, and um, and the production was equating to the album, of course. And uh, you know, and it felt good with the energy. I think the arc was a favourite song to play. You know, it was more like Iron Maiden and Venomesca and Civilized, which people seem to like. I, I, I always seems a bit odd with me that song because it. I don't know where it is. I don't know where it sits in the catalogue. Yeah. But it, it it was part of that session, so it felt good. You know. Um, Do you I have mean, any we, fan requests for songs off the EP? Um, we we have had, yeah, we have had. But I, I guess the thing is that, uh, you know, because we're not playing, because we're not up to that right now, um, with Empire we were playing stuff off the albums, but with uh, uh, this we haven't, we've got like Blackened, we play Black Another Priest, uh, Primeval, School Days we've done, uh, uh, of course Carnivorous, um, but we've just kind of scratched the yeah, surface, sure. you know. Yeah. But uh, it would be good to go back in and get uh, civilized that. And people have, you know, wanted those songs as well, um, and and lots of stuff from Temples and and Wastelands, of course. But um, it's just trying to get everything in, you know. Yeah. No. Okay. So you just mentioned the next one, or you mentioned the next two, actually. But we'll start with Temples of Ice because I I really like that album again as well. It was the second album that I purchased after Primeval, mainly because I could go into a record store back in those days and actually find it. You know, it was very. Yeah. That was a, that's a point. Actually, it was very hard. To, I mean, I'm, I'm Australian, obviously, so I'm talking about what it was like in Australia. But it was very hard to find your material in shops unless it was a new release. You know that. Yeah. Do you get yeah. that? Do you get that feedback from fans across the globe? Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah everywhere you know it's about distribution and 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 i didn't really quite understand it uh, until uh, sanctuary started to buy up uh, catalogs the sanctuary um went in and, and buying up smaller labels just for the just for the master tapes mm. and their idea was to then do compilations so they would take a whole master tapes like say they bought up a, a, a trojan who specialized in um reggae so they would take, they took boxes of tapes and just would hand it to engineers and go put us a compilation together, call it uh, Summertime. So he'd look through these tapes. Every time it said mention Summer, he'd put it to one side. He'd like pick them out. There was no, oh, we'll make it all Bob Marley. And then, it, no, it was just Summer, 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 12 tracks there you go, and Summertime CD. Yeah. And that's how they did it. But what they did was for the HMVs and the Tower Records, all that kind of shit, you had to buy sections of, the the selling the uh, platform. Oh, okay, yeah, gotcha, yeah. The retail so they, space, or whatever it is, yeah. The retail space. So they may have a whole line of product, um, but it cost them five grand a week, or just to have that rented. Oh shit, is that you how know? it worked back in those days? Yeah, yeah. yeah so as an independent, you had to, you know, somehow barter in to buy some space. So you know, a lot of those record companies, they couldn't afford 
that every week. So you would see an album go, oh, it's in. And then the next time you look for it, there's only the plastic thing with the name on it, but no yeah, album. No, that's, that happened all the time. Yeah, all the time. All the time. And so it was all about that. It was about buying the space in those stores. You know, the, the mom and dad stores, they were better because it didn't matter to them. You know, they'd only take like 10 copies or mm. something. And yep. when those were sold, they'd get another 10. And they, they, were, they weren't selling spaces in the store. They were just getting the product that the, the people wanted. But the bigger stores, that's how they operated, you know. And so um, it was very difficult. And, and you know, people would go, it's very easy to go, oh, that album didn't do so well because it, it was there for a while and then it disappeared. It's like, yeah, it wasn't because the people didn't want it and it wasn't because it wasn't viable. It was because the record company couldn't afford to keep putting it in there. And, I mean, we did something mm. with, with Empire of Evil with uh, Cleopatra in America. Now, Cleopatra are good friends and at work out of California, good record company, really. But they realized very quickly that all of the overheads of distribution and, and paying for shelf space and all of this, and with the closing down of the bigger uh, um, bigger shops, yeah. that, that they could cut all of that expense. And let's face it, it's a business. They all want to be making money, these people. So yeah. we can cut all that expense if we just do an online store. So that's what they do. So I did a deal for Crucified, the album that me and Mantis did yep. uh, of all Venom stuff, of my period Venom stuff. Yep. We put that with Cleopatra. But everybody in America was going to conquer it anywhere. And I said, you can only buy it through their store because they didn't do any on-the-ground distribution, which I didn't realize. So it's like, right, in order for you to find the album, first of all, you have to know Cleopatra's got it. Secondly, you have to be able to go to their catalog shop so if they don't promote that they've got it and you don't know that it's that's out there, yeah. how do you find it how do you mm. find it and and that's kind of another one of those processes that an album can be lost somewhere not because there's anything wrong with the piece but just because the, the way that that machine's working is not efficient and it's not about the end product which is you which is the person me Who's, I'm the one who wants it, you know? And if you see, you know, uh, if Sabbath brought, Sabbath brought at 13, fucking it was everywhere. You could see it everywhere. So you know you could go anywhere and get it, and you had loads of different options to get it. Mm. But um, the last Ultraviolence record, uh, you know who Ultraviolence are? No. But you know their last record? No. Mm -hmm. Did you know the one before that? No. Why? Because they were a small Italian label, they're based in Italy, and if you are not directly contacting with, they they don't advertise in the same way as the Sabbath did, so you don't see it, you know. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but um, but that's how it goes, I guess. That's how. I that's guess how that, they... that explains why um, I, I know a lot of people know Primeval. But certainly yeah. Temples of Ice and the Wastelands, you find most people have got to go to Wikipedia or what have you these days to actually understand that you, that there were albums released by absolutely. the early 90s. That's absolutely. Primeval, there was a big push all across the UK and Europe. There were posters everywhere on the release date. Uh, all the advertising was done. All the reviews were done. When we did Temples of Ice, I never saw one poster because the label didn't like the cover. Um, they weren't that keen on the production. I didn't think the production was as good as well, of course. But... Um, they, they they were a bit like uh, not sure about this, you know. So they didn't want the image up everywhere. So there was a couple of adverts, but nothing the same way. Um, they didn't have the same push. We then didn't go out and tour it. So by the time we did the wastelands, there was no advertising whatsoever. So yeah, the logo changed was, as well, didn't it? 
and the logo changed for for no reason that I can think of. I mean, well, in both those cases, you know, uh, much like Primeval, but but uh, kind of we were aware of it, but uh, more. But on Temples of Ice and um, and uh, the Wasteland. We did not see, myself and Jeff, we didn't see it until it was given to us. There it is. So, you know, there was no involvement in any of the structure of, of, of the song running, the production or the cover or the design or anything. You know, it was just given to us at the end. So, you know, we talked about that because talking about temples, I think I didn't like the cover. I'm not taking on the production. Um, the running order works. I think there's some good material in there, but the production wasn't what it should have been. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, um, but and if you if you get a chance to find the Empire of Evil Crucified album, you'll find songs from Temples that we redid with Jackson, me and Mantis, and we actually got the production better. He handled production, and you can feel what they should have sounded like. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, man, just mentioned that. I didn't even know it existed, to be honest with you. I, you know how it is, gosh. You know, there's so many albums that are out there. These days, exactly, but, yeah. I mean, of course, I've, I've, I haven't got a, you know, it's only been a couple of days ago since I've spoken to him. I've been busy with other things, mate. But as soon as I've got the time, I'll be sitting down and finding that, that, um, that album you just mentioned. There. Sorry, what was it called again? It was a re recording. Crucified. 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 Okay, yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll drop you a link anyway so you can, oh, you sweet. can, thank you. Yeah. But yeah, that, you know, then you get to hear where we, what we, what the sounds could have sounded like had we gone in that direction. But I just think that, that being presented with it, that, that it was a fait accompli by the time we saw it. So, but what we talked about earlier was that connection to the audience. Hmm. You know, it happens in a song. Where it, a good song is a song that you hear and go, I can relate to that fucking song. You know, and it could be in any genre, but if it speaks to you. And you understand it on a lyrical thing, then you're connected to it. The same thing with the music; it will connect to you, or it won't connect to you. You know, um, and someone plays a song, I fucking love this song, and you hear it and go, mm, it "Didn't do it for me," but yeah, it's all right. But then you play a song and go, "But this song," and then they go, mm, "It didn't do it for me," but yeah. Yeah, it just does. Subjective, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and I, I, that was the thing with temples; they didn't. The production, the, the presentation, the, the lack of what just we didn't connect with it fully, and it didn't connect fully because of that. Mm. Um, okay. And, and yeah, I think if we'd been more involved with the whole thing and more, we'd put ourselves into it more. It would uh, it would it would have been different, you know. So that album was released right on the precipice when the music industry almost changed forever. You know, and I'm talking about Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, all of those sort of bands coming out. Yeah. Did anybody, I'd love to, I'd love to know actually, because I can't imagine that anybody would be stupid enough to do it, but sit the three of you down and go, you know what, this Nevermind album sounds really cool. We want Venom to do this. No, no. And I think that, that, that was the, the ridiculous thing is that the industry drives, uh, tries to drive the market. I remember doing a project for Virgin and uh, the guy in the office and I said, all right, so what have you got that's cool? He went, oh, there's this band. I can't remember their name and they're gone now. And I said, all right. And he put on a track a little bit and I said, oh, well, they sound a bit like Radiohead. And he said, yeah, that's, that's, they're the new Radiohead. And I said, yeah, but they, but they sound like Radiohead. He went, well, that's what, that's what we're looking for. Radiohead sells massively. I went, yeah, but surely you don't want another Radiohead. I mean, you want another Radiohead, but not another Radiohead. Yeah. I mean, 
It's like, you know, you don't want 20 U2s. Fucking hell, one's enough. And then you want some of this stuff. <laughs> one's more than enough. <laughs> My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ like, Digital. Selling. How, how much more of that can we sell? Well, this band can only do this amount. So if we have 10 bands that sound like that, we've got a whole market. And they created the market. And they keep trying to create the market. Yeah. Ghost, baby metal. You know, yes, whether the bands are relevant or whatever, I'm not saying yes or no to. What I'm saying is they're a construct to create a market that they can sell records in, you know. And uh, and now there's a whole load of people who wear the hoods with the masks and the whole... Yeah, it's a marketing machine thing, isn't it? Yeah. Now it's a marketing machine, yeah. If you put me on the cover of a magazine or put the guy from Ghost on the cover of a magazine, does he sell more records? I don't know. Does he do more shows? No. Um, but does he look better when he's on the cover? Oh, yes. We're, yeah, we'll put him on. But it could be anybody. It could be your mum. It could be your Uncle Trevor. It's got the fucking name. It could be anybody. But it's people buy into the imaging thing. But it's because it's been pushed at them. It's been manipulated to them. And I think that's the kind of thing with the Britpop and the, and the uh, grunge, the independent scene, became huge and the industry drove it that way the the, rec yeah. the smaller record companies just got caught they got sideswiped you know there was a torpedo hit the hole they just were like what the fuck's going on and before they realized they were manipulated out the mag it's the same thing like now with magazines you know you can struggle fucking try oh if i could just get in my favorite magazine i just like even an article in my favorite magazine i tell you how you can get in your favorite magazine i tell you you can get the cover of your magazine make sure your bank account looks like that and not like that and you'll be on the front cover and you'll have your articles in there because money talks and if it's a, if it a magazine who is struggling to survive and there's several record companies who are going to help them to survive financially you know, because their, their, their sales went from 20,000 to five. Yeah. That's, that's a way. It helps the labels to promote. It helps the magazines to survive. But there's a danger of being like a Rupert Murdoch. It's like the front page is what you want it to be, not what it should be, not what the underground is, not what the kids maybe think it is they want it to be. It's what you decide to do. You design it so that they look at it that way. And, and all of the complaints about music in the industry from the bands is all pointed to that, you know? Oh, fucking this band and that band, and how come this band's doing this? How come that band? I don't understand that band. What the fuck are they doing? Because they're being brought into that position, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that was it. I think that, that at that time, the, with those, those two particular albums, that thing exploded. The label didn't know what to do. Um, they couldn't get the space. They couldn't get the advertising. They could. They just couldn't. There was no space for that because people were going, no, 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 fucking hell, we've got to. We're pushing this. You know, we want ten pages on Kurt Cobain. We don't want one page on five English bands. Or it's like, why do we want to waste that? Everybody loves Kurt Cobain, so it's like, bang, it was Nirvana City. You know, um, and you couldn't fight it. You couldn't fight it. And I think in the end, those labels. Not not long after that, in the nineties, Martin Hooker kind of gave up the ghost, and Music for Nations stopped being revitalized now but it wasn't the only label lots of them went bought it and threw it away you mm. know uh make force and and uh, had gone and and neat yeah. records and you know music financial london records they all started to fall down camp because it was like well we can't fight this of course 
nobody knew that Pantera would stick their head up in Texas and then the Scandinavians would go, right, that's it, we're going to burn a church and create black metal, fuck you all, and all of a sudden, bang, revolution yeah. again. Yeah, and 90s was so strange. With them. I mean, that's my era. That's when I grew up. That's when I was a teenager, of course. So that's where my memories, I think, are strongest because it's when you've got the deepest connection when you're a teenager to music and the things that are going on around you, really, because, A, you've got the time, but, B, your emotions are running wild at the time anyway, and we all just survive our teenage years, and music, for me, was the thing that you cling on to, particularly heavy yeah. metal, but unrelated yeah. to heavy metal, mate, is I remember those inane articles that the NME and... Um, Sounds, I think Sounds might have been doing it too. Remember those articles where they used to try to compare Oasis to the Be the Beatles? And they used oh, to yeah. try to say, um, the readers poll, who's greater, the Beatles or Oasis? Yeah. And it's like, now if you went, now if you show somebody who's 16 or 17, they wouldn't even know who Oasis are. No. <laughs> no exactly. I don't even think exactly. they'd know who the Gallagher brothers are, but you and I know exactly who they are because it was forced down our throats. Everybody... Every second magazine cover and article was about Liam was fighting with Neil or something's happening yes. with his wife or something, and it's like oh for God. And God. you know, and you know, those, those they did, and uh, and lots of other people did the same thing. They they there was a couple of PR people, particular in the UK, that would be employed, and their job, and they'd say it themselves, their job was to get them in. Every day in a newspaper or magazines. So right? they were in, yeah, they were in like national, the equivalent of national inquirers and stuff like shot in a cop. Oh, they're having an argument outside a restaurant. It's just two people walking out, talking to each other. But apparently it was an argument. Bullshit. You know, and I, I worked with a, 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 um, uh, for a little bit uh, for a company and uh, one of the artists they had was Sinita. And she was like a pop star from the 70s, 80s. Uh, she then ended up shacking up with Simon Cowell for a long while. And she said that the company, this, one of these guys that they, she used, he, she was, the stories that were in the papers constantly, and she said, he just said, just go with it. You can deny whatever you want to do, but we're just going to make sure that everybody, you're a household name and everybody knows who you are. And you couldn't, there was a point where you could not pick up a paper or walk past the newsstand without seeing her picture, without seeing a story on her. Oh, Sunita's terrible heartbreak. Sunita's childhood, whatever. Yeah. Sunita yeah, the lady dies syndrome, the that. princess Diana syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's like, just, just go. And that's, you know, if you, perception is everything. If you go, you know, uh, I'm the best businessman in the world. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. All of a sudden you become president, you know. <laughs> you know, you convince people. Repetition is yeah, convincing. Wrong. <laughs> you know, Goebbels, Goebbels, who was like the engineer of the Third Reich, if you like, you know, wrote a book on propaganda, and his idea was propaganda is what you do is repetition is the key. Yeah. And what you do is also you create your market. You tell someone um, who erstwhile might not go, you're a fucking nutcase, so I'm not going to uh, listen to you or follow you. You give them a problem and then you make sure you're the only solution. So you have to create the problem that only you could be solving, and then you give the problem to them. This is what's going to happen. Mm. I mean, I know how to fix it, but it's up to you. I mean, but I don't know what we're going to do. And they go like, well, you, may, you keep repeating that until they start to shit themselves, and then they go and fucking do whatever you're going to do. Please, please, you do it for me. And then you go, okay, now they trust you. Now you can manipulate 
they see you as a savior. And it's exactly those processes in that propaganda, which after World War II were embraced particularly by America and have been used ever since for marketing. Fox News use it and all the news channels use that kind of clever propaganda, you know? Yeah. It's like positive, 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 positive. All of a sudden you start to doubt the other thing because it's like, yeah, but... I mean, they wouldn't put, they wouldn't be in, my mum used to go, have you read that thing in the newspaper about blah, blah, blah? And I'd go, no. And they'd go, I mean, and then I'd go, well, I don't read newspapers. Yeah, but it's, why? And it's because it's one person's opinion. And I don't know what hmm. the background is. Maybe they've got a, a reason to be writing that. And you go, well, they wouldn't put it in the paper if it wasn't true. It's like, hello, uh, they might. They might put it in the paper if it's not true. Well, I think all you know? news is just a form of marketing, to your point. And it's it's sort of just got to the point. I, look, I'll, I'll freely admit, I, I trot in the morning. I tell you what I would do. I wake up, I'm on Twitter. So I go and see what the, you know, the articles that are trending, the items that are trending. And then I go to the local section because I can, you know, you just type in Brisbane or whatever it might be and it'll tell you what's going yep. on locally. That's about it. Outside yeah. of that, it's all just. It, well, what is it, mate? It's all just something that somebody's telling you because that's their opinion. Exactly, and what what and what tends to happen is if it's not trending, for example, let's say it's not trending on a feed, um, uh, or it's not being uh, boosted as a post on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. Is that you go? I didn't know you had that album out. Yeah, you don't because it's not being boosted, it's not being trended, there's nobody behind it pushing it. And so it's manipulated out of the zone, you know, and they, they call it a zone because that's the target zone. Exactly. And yeah. it's like, you know, people like, you know, uh, uh, Miley Cyrus or whatever. When you go to Los Angeles and you go to Instagram or Twitter in particular, there's a fucking, there's a floor here and 50% of the floor of people you know, I mean, the square acreage, 50% of those people are doing Twitters for Miley Cyrus and this one and that one, Beyonce and blah, blah, blah. That's what they do all day. 50% yeah. on that side are doing them for these artists. And then you go to Instagram, same thing, whole corporate people who are at the computer all day doing Instagram for this person or Instagram for that person. Yeah. Every half hour, I have to do this. Bang. New album, blah, blah, blah. Every half hour, you have to go gig, bling, blank. It's a it's a machine, it's a machine, and so uh, you know when they say underground, and I think that Temples of Ice and Wastelands at that point were underground albums, yes, yeah, because agree, it, yeah. it, the mainstay was going down, and the corporations moved back in, and so you know uh, uh, you have to tour those underground things, but the whole expression yes. of underground is is only meaning. Uh, it's 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 a kind of term that the industries use to create to make it sound like it's not legitimate and it's not really of any value. You know, it's pubs and all that shit and the kids. You know, don't worry about it yeah. because if they if they if they if they, re, well, they know, but if people they in their mind, if people think that this is an actual entity that is actually a machine also and make can make money and please people and stuff, then they lose control. The magazines might turn around and go, well, actually, you know, these are the bands that we should be covering, not not you, you know. And if if they covered the underground and they started to sell 40,000 copies, then they wouldn't need the money from their corporates. So the corporates have to keep them in a position, again, you know, create the problem that you're the solution to. Not enough people buy your magazine. I mean, I could give you 
this amount of money per month, but then if you could feature my artist, that would be good. Okay, yeah, that's cool, you know. Um, so yeah. you buy it. It's 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 nothing derogatory about the people or the or the the people who are trying to do good things because there is still good magazines. There are still great journalists and and that, but there there also is that uh, um, there is that bit where you get caught. If someone's going to go, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 10 grand to do a radio blog every time as long as you plug me all the time. Yeah. What, you're going to go, no, nah, I don't need that 10 grand. I don't want to do that. Your principles and your ethics sometimes win a little bit because of necessity. Uh, yes. And it's difficult, it's difficult. Yeah, so, look, I mean, as I say, I was, I remember the 90s, not vividly, but I certainly remember them well enough and, 1992 was about the year that everything started to shift, I think, in my view. So just if I look at the chronology of things for heavy metal, okay, metal ended up coming back. Actually, I'm going to jump forward a bit. Sorry, it's going to sound like a bit of an ambiguous point here, but I think it was Brian Slagle has come out recently and said that metalcore was the reason. Now, I don't want to misquote you. I don't know. It might not be Brian Slagle. Somebody very significant. It was. was, was, I'm ready. Yeah, you're ready. He came and said metalcore is the reason that metal came back because of what it was able to achieve in the 2000s by getting young people involved in metal again. And I thought about it and I thought that's not an absurd statement at all. He's actually correct because it's only, look, I've stopped doing my career as a telecommunications account executive and all the rest of it. And so I've had the time now to start investigating these these, um, metalcore and deathcore bands. And to be honest, mate, I'd never heard of a lot of them before. Or if I'd heard of, no. heard of the band name, I'd never heard of the music before. And, of course, half of the artists that I interview are either metalcore artists or deathcore artists. And I've really yeah. been able to dive into it and start understanding uh, about it. But I think what happened is you had a lot of these 8-, 9-, and 10-year-olds that started listening to Cannibal Corpse records and Venom records and the like, and they started going, right, I'm going to do this. And they started coming yeah. out with this stuff that was totally in a vacuum and a bit of a... You know, away from the spotlight, it was in a place where mushroom grows, so to speak, and they're able exactly. to create this brutal music. And all of a sudden, these kids through the MySpace generation tagged onto it. And I think by yeah. that stage, metal had found a voice again. But maybe yeah. it had taken fifteen years or so, hadn't it? Really? Yes. But you know, that's I kind of think that's the thing. It's it's every evolution has a revolution. You know, and the youth will find their thing. And, um, you know, grunge, okay, uh, I mean, it was pretty close to kind of metal rock, you know, and maybe that was what gave them from a very depressed area of the country, Seattle, you know, had a high suicide rate. It's very rainy most of the year. So, you know, I mean, it's like the black metal bands coming from Sweden. It's dark most of the time, and there's a high suicide rate. Mm. So you get this very soulful thing coming out of that, which is, like, hopeless but also entertaining, you know, but it speaks to you. I feel like that. I feel like that, you know. Uh, And so you relate to those things, and I think that's what kids were relating to, that, oh, where the fuck are we? What the fuck's going on, you know? Um, the Britpop thing was a fashion. It was all about fashion, how you look, you know. <laughs> uh, and, um, and 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 in England, you know, ooh, they buy into that. I wear a nice shirt and nice shoes, and it's like mods yeah. and rockers and stuff. So we identify with how people look, you know, because we, we, we forget sometimes it's actually about the person and not, not the color of their lipstick. But, but that, So those kind of things evolved themselves, and I think, Yes, it's always there was going to be something bubbling up. What was going to be the next thing? And it was young people listening to those old hardcore, old 
you know, records. It could have been some punk, mainly the metal stuff and things, and all that energy, you know, and they absorbed that, and they wanted to go, I fucking had enough of this shit. I don't want to listen to this shit anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, with, and, and yet it inspired them to take that. And because they're advanced, you know, like you can't compare, uh, you can't compare, you just can't compare uh, 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 Sabbath to to Motorhead, to Slayer, to uh, uh, um, Pantera, to sure. to Immortal. You, are they linked? Of course, uh, mm. you know they're all linked to Elvis and they're all linked to Muddy Waters, or, you know, That's and so Brian But 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 are they are they? Can you identify them as being the same thing? No, no. There's an individuality, and so as you progress those new people put their own spin on it and that's what the kids did and bang you had their metal core crossover thing it worked perfectly you know it worked absolutely perfectly and it did bring it back into you know that new metal if it wasn't for new metal would we have had old metal back you know uh, somebody yeah, that's had such to... a good point that you make right there because you know a lot of metal fans hate on new metal and i actually understand where they're coming from because i didn't get into it either but i appreciate that it was a stepping stone to where we are now Yes, because metal bands would listen to the older people and, you know, would listen to the new metal bands going, the fuck? And then they'd be, they're all the people going, that's not fucking metal, this is metal. And they go, I'll show you what metal is. And all of a sudden you've got, so it actually, you know, it's again like a boxing match, you know. We got an uppercut and went, right, that's it, fucking hell that hurt, I'm going to knock you out now. (laughs) And bang, we get the benefit of all of that. Well, I reckon there'd be a ton of kids uh, you know, when I say kids, people sort of beneath the age of 20, 25 or so that started with Limp Biscuit or, you know, bands like that, yeah, or what have you, that now listen to Venom because that was their gateway band, you know, yes. that went on to YouTube. There's a girl, there's a very, very sweet girl uh, who, who lives up in uh, uh, Denver and we played a show. And, um, you know, she came to the show and we got her on, we got her on the bus and uh, afterwards she was waiting for her sister and uh, we chatted, uh, and we looked after her till her sister came, you know, and, and got her sorted out and stuff. And a very lovely girl. And and um, she said that she was listening to, you know, the new metal stuff. And she was listening to an interview on the radio, and they mentioned Venom and a couple of other bands. And she was like, oh, I don't know who they are. She said, so I then I went online and I had a look, and then I found out about these bands and I listened to them and went, oh my God, that's really, really, and there she was at the show. And it, yeah. you know, so that's, that's the reality of it. it you know, these things, because all of those metalcore bands and then Biscuits and, you know, uh, you know, Slipknot and all that, you know, all of, all of that, uh, well, Slipknot's slightly bit different, but, but, um, you know, Linkin Park, they, they all were, the reason they were doing metal, you know, new metal, old metal, whatever. But the reason they were doing metal is because they were all influenced by those great music and bands. So it's like inevitably it's going to find its way into the music and then inevitably they're going to talk about it. And that then makes it, it doesn't matter when you find the catalogue of Motorhead, as long as you find it. And it doesn't matter when you find the catalogue of Venom or any other band, Slayer. It's like one song, two songs, an album. It doesn't matter which one. You, You then have a whole rich catalogue you can fold back on and enjoy hopefully you know and always find something and so uh, that's why I think that's why I think that's brilliant but I think uh, Slagle you know my name is Andrew Mackay Smith and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4 Z Z Digital because it's kids stuff 
Um, but he's right. You know, in reality, that's exactly what happened. You know, that inspired everybody else to bring it back. Um, and now the kids are going because that was like um, that was like you know having their moment. But then they go, and I really enjoyed that. But there was I've just found out there was this whole tsunami before that that I missed. I want to. Uh, what was that like? And now when we go to shows and when, when young people talk about our album, the new album, when I've been doing reviews for like 20-year-olds or something, that's what I'm getting from. They're enthused. They're going, oh, my God, this is exciting. They never got excited, like, you know, downloading from Spotify or downloading from iTunes. Mm. But they do get excited about actually buying a record and then seeing a band playing that record, just like we did, you know. Mm. And that's what's brilliant now. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a re- there's a reality to it, and and now it's yours, you know. You yeah. brought it. That's right. It's a, it's like a personal thing these days, isn't it? Isn't it? Like there's not. I don't. I don't are, there, are there record stores anymore? I know in Australia we've got JB Hi-Fi, and I think that's it. I think we've only got the one record store left. I, yeah. And and. I, I don't even know. I haven't been in there in years, right? But I think I bought vinyl in there, but I only go to the vinyl section and pick up the vinyl until I realised I could buy it for half the price directly from the distributor overseas or whatever <laughs> than pay yeah, for the, exactly. the bricks and mortar yeah. and a re- retail setup. But yeah, we're not compartmentalised anymore. So do you, do you ever get many fans coming up to you and saying, I don't listen to any other metal, but I love Venom? Um, well, funny enough, I mean, y- yes, uh, there has been people who kind of uh who aren't really rockers and metal and, and uh of course people associated with you are going to support you as well so they're going to do that but what's odd is people who have i've got no association association with uh have uh, commented on this or that and gone oh really you know this is really cool you know and, and i find that i find that's really odd you know because um much like the fact that when I think Croatia or someone like that has just announced that they may be looking to ban any metal bands going there. I don't want to get it wrong if it isn't Croatia, but it's one of those Slavic uh, Slavic countries. But mm. because they think it's a bad influence, they think the bands and all of that shit is a bad influence on the kids. Again, it's about control. We don't want them to have a voice, and we don't want them to be independent. We want them just to be homogenized like mushrooms, just doing what they're told. But uh, so there's a fear there, but inherently, but. Uh, um, what I find is uh, the reaction always surprised me because you can play on stage you're playing a song let's say in league with Satan mm-hmm. uh, I'm in league with Satan I was raised in hell okay uh, you know I walked the streets of Salem amongst the living dead you know I need no one to tell me what's wrong or right you know uh, uh, you can stalk the prayer at night you can drink the blood of children tear the infant's flesh I mean you know, that's really lovely, isn't it? But when you look down, not only are those, everybody singing, yeah. but with huge fucking smiles. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's uplifting thinking, to the spirit, yeah. Yes! Now, if you think of it on a lyrical level, bloodlust, you know, stalking the night, and fasting my prayer during the light of the dawning of the day, drinking and sucking a blood rich and sweet, heart drain of glory and heart drain of heat, bloodlust. And everybody's like, yes, this is great. So... I guess it's like watching a horror movie or watching, yeah, you know, totally. something. It's like, you know, I don't have to go out and, and uh, fly fly and save a whole train that's about to crash down a ravine. I don't have to be able to do that myself to enjoy watching Superman do it in a, in a movie or Iron Man do it. You know, it's, it's a fantasy type of thing as well. But it is a release. And I find it very strange to have 
a dark music being very uplifting. But again, it it it, it brings everybody together, and I think I think that's it. So that that always puzzles me, uh, and it fascinates me at the same time as well as when somebody who doesn't listen to metal goes, "Oh, I heard that thing you were talking about," and you go, "Yeah," they go, "Fine, I really like that," and you're thinking, "What really?" You know. And I mean, you know, I played a show. We played a show in London, the Electric Ballroom. Uh, with obituary as Empire Evil, but we did a couple of Venom songs. But you know, fa- family people came down, and, that, and there was mums and dads. One one mum and dad, he's an architect, she's a teacher, and I looked after their daughter and their sons a couple of times. Just look, you know, yeah, I'll come around and check them out when they were going out. And uh, and he was standing on stage, and he turned around to friends of mine and went, "Holy shit, that, I let that guy look after my daughter," you know. <laughs> And when they came out, they were so, they're not into metal at all. And of course, they were associated, they wanted to come to see what it was all about, but they were going, I had the best time, the yeah. completely the best time. Um, you know, and so, so yes, it does happen. You know, I think it, it can translate. If people are open and they get the opportunity, you can't go and see a band that you don't know is playing. You can't buy a band's record if you don't know it's out. You know, you can't, you can't appreciate the music or disdain their music if you've never heard it. You know, and I think uh, uh, because of social media, that's a problem, but also is a problem that people guess a lot of stuff. I wouldn't listen to fucking the Venom 18 because it's not Venom. I mean, it can't be Venom without Kronos. Okay, why is that? Uh, because he was the voice of... Why, why is that? What about the other? Oh, well, I don't know. Have you listened? No, I'm not listening to them. Right, so you're not listening to something that you're postulating on... You know, that's like going. I'm not. I'm not having you paint my living room. I don't like the color. And you say, well, I haven't. I haven't but told you what you the get, color is. Do you get a lot of that? You know, we prefer Conrad sort of stuff. I couldn't imagine that you would because you are so ingrained in the legacy of the band. Well, you you still get it, but it that's the point. It's it, you do get it, but it's from a point of um, it's a it's like this. You know, la 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 la. la I'm not listening. I'm listening. No no no. It's that. It's not. It's not. You know coming and experiencing it and going, I don't like it, you know, or I do, you know, there's very, very few of that. It's more about, um, I don't want to like it, so therefore I'm not going to listen to it, I'm not going to watch it, I'm going to disdain it because it's not real and I don't want it and I don't, and it's, I think they're in fear. And again, they're in fear of, they think they're going to lose a piece of themselves that's important to them. If that's they, weird, not, isn't it? You're right. That's exactly what it is. It's like it's like if they, if a member shifts or, you know, there's a, a change in direction. There's a band, actually. Uh, you've heard of a band called Suicide Silence. They're a metalcore Absolute, band or a deathcore yes. band. Yeah. yeah. So I, I interviewed the bass player, lovely guy, and um, I hadn't, I'd only listened to one track. Now, again, as I mentioned uh, not that long ago, I'm not that familiar with these bands, to be honest with you. I'm an old school metalhead, so um, I'm really a recent arrival to the stages of deathcore and metalcore bands. But their new album, you can definitely hear the change, and it sounds like a new metal record a little bit. It sounds a lot like a Deftones record or a Corn record or what have you. Yeah, well, I, didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I don't mind those bands, to be honest with you, so I could get into it. But holy yeah. shit, the fans have come out with 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 hammer and tongs, mate, and knives yeah, and forks. Are and yeah, what, you, yeah. what are you doing? So much so that... I don't know this for sure because I don't know the guys and I won't speak for them, but they've announced that they're going to be touring off the back of one of their classic albums. You know how Morbid Angel did Covenant back to front? Yeah. And a few yeah. other bands do the same thing. Well, they're coming yeah. out with their with their landmark album. They're going to do the same thing. And, of course, Morbid Angel went through the same thing with Illud Divinum Insanus, which I really enjoyed, by the way. 
Um, yes, yes. And, and, but the band themselves, I think Trazik Toth probably realised, oh, shit. I mean, I couldn't talk to anybody that liked that record. I was the only one, to be honest with you. And, <laughs> and I, I certainly didn't go online and post anything because unless you get held down. But, but, and I even yeah. spoke to David Vincent about it as well, about what was going on during that, that tenure in the band's, that episode of the band's legacy, if you like. Um, it's like people don't like change, do they? Particularly within metal. And that's something that, with this new radio show that I'm doing, I am focusing on artists predominantly in the sphere of metal. Although my first one was first episode was about Paco de Lucia, you know, the Spanish flamenco guitarist yeah. because I love guitar. Yeah. Um, but people in the metal, they just don't like change, do they? And they don't embrace change as a necessary part of evolution. You know? Yeah, it's it's fair. It, it, a sixteen-year-old grows into a fifty-year-old, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, and they change. Uh, they change. And um, uh, some of their attitudes change. Some of the, they conform mostly. And and I told uh, um, I told to many guys on the European tour that would go or the American tours or the tours we've done where they would come up and go, man, you made me feel like I was 16 again. I said, yeah, and you made me feel like I was 16. And the point is, is that if I can do that with the music, if I can get that that moment, that 16 year old person is still in your head. You know, when women grow or men don't grow up, well, they don't grow up either. Inside your head, you're the same person all the way through, all the way through. So your body is yeah, Yes, exactly. Body, yeah. Yeah, experience is knowledge, and that is, that is just broadening your knowledge. It's not kind of changing you. It's just illuminating you, and your body ages. So we assume that, you know, don't wear that. Don't dance at the wedding, Dad. You shit. You can't dance. You know. Well, your dad was a shit dancer when he could dance, and now he's still a shit dancer. He can't move as well. <laughs> so you know, but in his head, he's dancing as good as he ever danced. You know. Yeah. So it's not about his dancing. It's about you know how it's perceived. But I think that that's the key. And and when if you can liberate that that teenager, that sixteen year old or whatever it is, for for a night. So that that person realizes, hang on, I, I am that person. I forgot I'm still that person. I didn't embrace that I was still that person. And I remember saying to one guy, this is what I want you to do every weekend. I want you to make sure everybody's at the house. I want you to turn all the lights off, open the curtains, put on your favorite band, get a tennis racket or something, and play Madison Square Gardens just for an hour. You'll feel fucking fantastic afterwards, and you'll feel that you were a kid again. Jump around the furniture, do what the fuck you like. You know, liberate yourself. You know, we all need that. That's why people go on vacation. I need to get away. What, you need to get away? Because, you know, and music is, is that. It's that moment. You fear that you're going to lose it. If this Metallica isn't, like Master of Puppets, what am I going to do? You know, Master of Puppets was so significant to me. I want it to be significant for the rest of my life. It's like, it is significant and it won't change. You know, Lemmy uh, did Ace of Spades. Lemmy's gone. I don't want him to be gone. Nobody wants him to be gone. But I've got all my records with him on. I've got images with him on. And that I didn't... I have every Motorhead record, and every time I got one, I wanted it to be to do what the first ones did to me. Yes. And it took you know twenty years to realize that's never going to happen because what happened when I first got introduced to them, what happened when I first heard them, is so significant to me. It can't happen again. It happened. Mm. So 
you know, I have to accept that that I've got that moment to go back to. I've got those records to go back to, and nothing is ever going to change that. So therefore, I'm quite happy to have whatever comes next and accept it, and I like it, not like it. But it is it is built. It's a knee-jerk reaction built on fear that people think they're going to lose a piece of themselves and never get it back again. It's like, well, you had it. So as long as you've got it, it's why you know I fucking tattoo names of where I go now on my skin. Yeah, I've, I've, I've forgotten to ask you about that last time. I did notice you've got names of U.S. states or towns. Uh, I've got, I've got um, you know, Europe on me back, the European tour. I've got festivals. I've got, you know, Auckland, America, Japan, mm. Malaysia, you know, China, Taiwan. You know, when we were doing it again, I thought, you, you at this stage, we have to enjoy it. And I thought, yeah. you know, in, in the old days, I'd keep a, rip a poster down or, you know, catch a flyer or, you know, a T-shirt. But over the years, those things get eaten or wasted or burnt or waterlogged or you give them away. And all of a sudden, when someone goes, oh, do you remember doing that? You sit there and go, ah, fuck. And if there's no photograph and you don't have a piece of paper and there's nothing to signify that, it's in your head you have to try and recall it. And I thought, this time it's so significant. Mm. How am I going to... I can't collate bits of paper from fucking, you know, six or seven tours and, and whatever else we do. It's just too much stuff. So I thought, I know when it's significant, I'll put it on my skin. No, good and idea, then yeah. I never forget because when someone goes, what does that say? The minute they go, what does that say? And, I, and I'm pointing at it, I'm right back there. I'm right mm. back there and with everyone. So... It's a way of keeping a record of what I'm doing, you know, um, and the significance of that. That's sweet. I'll have, a big, I'll, have a, I'll have a huge Australian tattoo <laughs> on my chest like that with, uh, with kangaroos, everything. Well, well is, the well, challenge will be, yeah, the challenge will be to get you guys to come to my part of the world because I'm on the Sunshine Coast, which is a bit further north of Brisbane. Actually, so <laughs> yes. it's beach. Yeah, I, live, yeah. I live near the beach, actually. I go to the beach most days, actually. When I'm not too busy, you know how it is. I don't surf. I just like swimming. Um, yeah, yeah. going in the water it does a world of good for you doing that sort of stuff but yeah that'll be the challenge I reckon and when I spoke to Mantis he, he alluded to the fact that you guys might be here next year is that right? Yes I mean, that's the, the, I've been trying this year to to get our management talking to the Australian promoters so uh, you know I've been talking about three or four years trying to get us down to New Zealand and Australia so uh, at the minute that's the push I'm making so because we're going to be going to Japan uh, I'm trying to put in Taiwan, China, uh, Singapore, Bangkok, um, uh, a couple of others, uh, Jakarta possibly, but I definitely want to get us onto your uh, continent and I want to get us into uh, New Zealand as well. So it's really important, you know, and early in the year, if I can, February, March. Oh, and yeah. then when it's hot, yeah, when it's a bit, bit good weather for you guys too. Yeah, exactly. You know, because they're amazing countries and they're so beautiful and, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, I, I've never been that way as well, you know, so it's a bit selfish, but everybody says so many wonderful things and I thought, I just want to be there, you know, and see <laughs> it for myself and experience it, you know, the food, the people, the whole the whole thing, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a very big similarity between an Aussie attitude and a, and a Geordie attitude, you know, and, and uh, you know, and I want to... I would just want to experience that. And I think it's really, really important. And like I said, you know, it's difficult, it's expensive, and, and, and to touring and stuff like that. And, and people go like, ah, it's all down, the way down there. It's like, right, okay, so what's the significance of, like, the two fans who live in my street? Mm. I can walk down and talk to them anytime. But, and they buy the records or they buy the, the, the stuff. 
But you're telling me a guy who lives in South Island, New Zealand, who's invested his whole life in the band, in this, he's not worth going to play a show for. Sure, yeah. yeah. It's like, of course he is, of course he is. So wherever there's fans, there's shows, and we we have a duty to go. And uh, and I want us to go. I want us to. So, you know, that that's all I would say, that we will be there, absolutely, the, uh, next year, as soon as I can get us there. You are listening to Scars and Guitars, the podcast series. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that was my conversation with Tony Demolition Mandolin, the frontman and bass player for Venom Inc. Thank you so much for listening.